Hi everyone, welcome to Moving Beyond Pandemic, the podcast from the Migration Policy Institute that looks at how COVID-19 is reshaping all aspects of human movement from tourism and business travel to labour migration and mobility. I'm Megan Benton, I'm the Research Director for MPI's international work and for our sister organisation MPI Europe. The last couple of episodes have looked at how border management is adapting to the pandemic through border closures and quarantines and PCR testing at ports of entry. But today we're going to talk about the mother of all unintended consequences that's related to these shifts, the impact of COVID-19 restrictions on smuggling and irregular migration. Over the past six, seven months, border closures have made it much harder to move. They initially created a bit of a chilling effect as people sought to shelter in place or return to their families. But now we're seeing competing dynamics at play, an uneven global economic recovery, this constantly shifting COVID case picture, both in countries of origin and destination, and then new and really fast evolving exit and entry restrictions and health requirements. So the question today, how is all of this affecting the decision-making calculus for would-be migrants, the routes and channels they take, and the business model of smugglers who facilitate many irregular movements? I spoke to Matt Herbert, who is the research manager for the North Africa and Sahel Observatory of the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. He's an expert in irregular migration and smuggling, and he's been following how the pandemic is affecting human smuggling and migration movements, especially through Northern Africa and to Europe. Hi, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us uh, today. We're going to talk a little bit today about, about smuggling mainly, and I know that you've been doing lots of work to, to really track um, how COVID-19 is, is affecting smuggling um, worldwide. Um, I mean, one of the really sort of dramatic defining features of this pandemic has been border closures and travel restrictions. It's just been such a, um, a, a feature and it happened so quickly and it's happened everywhere. What, what did this mean for the the sort of shadow world of the movement of people? Did it also lock down or has it kind of continued through the different phases of the pandemic? So we've certainly seen uh, different phases within the, the shadow economy, uh, specifically within within human smuggling as it relates to, to COVID. So in the very first months of uh, the pandemic's arrival here in the Mediterranean, and I should say that uh, the area I and my team cover is primarily uh, North Africa and the Sahel. And so that'll be where I focus my comments today. Mm-hmm. And so when we look back to March, when uh, COVID started to, uh, to become an issue of significant concern, not just for European countries, but uh, for those in North Africa and those in the Sahel, you did start to see a, a number of border closures uh, Algeria, Libya, Tunisia, Niger, uh, others, but as well a significant uh, impact on mobility within countries. So it became not just difficult, for example, for migrants from Nigeria or from other areas of West Africa to get into Niger. Uh, It became very difficult for them to travel through the country itself. And Mm -hmm. so these border closures, uh, both the border closures and the mobility restrictions, led to uh, a pause, if you will, 
-hmm. some cases quite brief, in some cases uh, actually continuing up to uh, the summer. In the transit of migrants through various areas, uh, especially the central Sahara, but very rapidly in some places, uh, such as northern Niger and Libya, you did see a rebound. So, for example, if you look at northern Niger and southern Libya, you both had the formal border closure on the Nigerian side, as well as an increase in uh, armed group activity on the Libyan mm -hmm. side. Armed groups that were largely sponsored by local communities or emanating from local communities that were attempting to limit the movement of, uh, of irregular migrants, of human smugglers into Libya, into the communities, due to the fear that uh, there would be some sort of, uh, some sort of contagion, some sort mm -hmm. of uh, risk posed. Now, what that has now, uh, or what that morphed into after about a month, was a attempt by smugglers to uh, to evade these restrictions, evading them both on the Nigerian side as well as uh, on the Libyan side. You saw a number of smugglers start to take uh, take routes through very underpopulated areas, uh, zones that were very remote and uh, often quite dangerous. And this uh, posed actually a significant threat to a lot of the migrants that were were taking uh, uh, taking passage with these smugglers. And in fact, you have seen a number of uh, deaths that have occurred, not necessarily due to to attacks or to nefarious activity, but rather because the smugglers are now forced to take routes that are so remote uh, and the the terrain so poor that vehicle breakdowns are a significant concern. So if you look back at the end of May, for example, there was a two-vehicle convoy filled with Nigerian migrants that broke down in uh, southern Libya, and all the migrants, unfortunately, uh, on that convoy passed away. Yeah. Now, I should say, too, that some of the smugglers have also sought to, uh, to benefit off, uh, off COVID and off the, the demand that exists for migrant transport between the countries. So you have seen a sharp increase in prices, uh, for example, movement from northern Niger up to the southern Libyan uh, city of Sebha has roughly tripled in price for non-Nigerian migrants uh, that are looking to make the journey. And even for Nigerians, it's, it's roughly doubled in price. And so the, the impact on the smuggling economy is, uh, is a, bit, uh, a bit mixed right now. So the business model of the smugglers has kind of changed in that they're taking more risky routes. Does that also mean that the type of operations has changed too? So in, instead of the sort of more informal, small scale operations, it's being crowded out by more professional operations that are happy to sort of that have that, you know, appetite for risk or more organized. And then how has it changed? Um, who is traveling? You said that prices have risen. Does that mean that are people who are more desperate? Are they people who are more wealthy? Um, you know, how has the profile of migrants who are moving also changed? That's an important point. And I think that that actually gets into to the third phase of uh, the impact of, of COVID on all of this, which is the, uh, the fact that COVID has started to drive irregular migration itself or the, the ramifications of, of COVID. So I'll address your, your second point first uh, in terms of who's moving. So both due to the border closures, uh, as well as the, the economic impact of COVID in Niger, in Libya, 
in uh, Tunisia and other points throughout the Maghreb, you have started to see uh, seen increased interest by nationals from some of those countries, notably Tunisia, uh, in irregularly migrating. Essentially, this is economically driven. The ramifications of, uh, of the COVID shutdowns in each of these countries has really been catastrophic for especially uh, small-scale laborers or those within the informal economy. And so, for example, you've seen uh, nearly 6,500 uh, Tunisian irregular migrants be disembarked in Italy uh, through the, uh, the 13th of August. And this is extraordinarily high. But you're also starting to see, for example, uh, irregular migrants from Niger uh, going north into Libya in slightly greater numbers. And you know, the, the smugglers are, are catering to these individuals because they don't have to cross borders uh, to be able to arrive at the, the smuggling jump off mm-hmm. points in northern Niger. Rather, they can just travel within the country and get there. Uh, and so they're starting to go north into uh, into Libya. But as well, some of those that are leaving Libya right now seem to be members of the, the migrant community that has been in situ in northern Libyan cities for quite some time. It's important to remember that the economic ramifications of COVID don't simply strike citizens of Tunisia and Niger and Libya but also the migrant communities that live mm-hmm. there. And oftentimes, these are the individuals that are uh, most economically at risk and most economically desperate. And so as we look at uh, what has transpired uh, in Libya to date in terms of the number of departures of irregular migrants towards Europe, and I think what we can credibly anticipate will come over the coming months, I think that we have to look not only at those, those migrants that have traveled to Libya as a transit point uh, to go north to Europe, but also those that originally came to Libya as a destination country Mm -hmm. and now find themselves in increasingly strained economic circumstances. Well, how much um, of a factor are the sort of underdeveloped health systems? So particularly in Libya, you know, it's been a real concern um, following the civil war and the kind of collapse of infrastructure. Is is it really just the economic driver or is there also a kind of... Uh, a push factor related to concerns about COVID and the sort of health response. I mean, I know that cases are still fairly low in Libya. I mean, I mean, if if we can trust the data there. So the cases are uh, fairly low so far in in Libya, um, but I think that there's also an issue of uh, of full coverage. I think that mm-hmm. we simply don't know what the prevalency of COVID in Libya right now is, uh, and one of the reasons I flag that is. Looking at arrivals that we've had here in Malta, so some of the the boats that have been that have come into the, the search and rescue zone from Malta and subsequently been taken to to the island and disembarked, they've had extremely high levels of COVID prevalence amongst uh, right. amongst those that are disembarked. I think one vessel had 65 or 66 uh, irregular wow. migrants that uh, that were ill. And if there's that concentration of, uh, of infection just within that small group, I think that it, uh, it raises particular concerns about just what the, what the general prevalency is, at least within the migrant community uh, in Libya, if not within the, the broader community. Uh, in terms of concerns about the, the health sector and not motivating desires to, to move, I haven't heard that to date. Um, but what I will say is that, again, in the very early stages of the pandemic, one of the interesting 
things that we heard in social media, especially by uh, North Africans that were considering migration to Europe, was actually originally hesitancy to go to Europe, hesitancy to uh, to mm-hmm. regularly migrate from Morocco, from Algeria, up into Spain and Italy, because of the relatively high prevalence of uh, of COVID in European countries. Now, obviously, that's started to to shift with the prevalence in North African states ticking up, and that in uh, in some European states uh, declining, though declining intermittently. Uh, but what I would say is that COVID very clearly figures in as a factor as people are deciding uh, to migrate. Uh, and so I think that if there is a resurgence of COVID in Europe this fall and this winter, if it's perceived that the, the situation in Europe is manifestly worse uh, health-wise than what's seen in North African states, it actually could act as an interesting break uh, to a degree on irregular mm-hmm. migration decisions by, by some within North Africa. Really interesting. And you already kind of touched on this a little bit, but you talked about how how border closures can increase demand for smuggling. And obviously, one thing that's always, always spoken about is how the broad trend um, in recent years around the securitization of borders and greater surveillance and stronger border enforcement, this has all driven people to use smuggling networks. What do you think that the next six months or so holds if we see a shift from border closures to this kind of rethinking the border management infrastructure to have greater health processes and, and procedures, whether it's kind of COVID testing um, at borders or quarantine periods or the color coding risk assessments that you know Malta has <laughs> has fallen into right now. Um, and then a little bit further ahead, I suppose, when we have a vaccine, a widely available vaccine, and people may need a vaccine record, a COVID vaccine record to travel. Do you think that smugglers are going to adapt to this? Will it drive demand for smugglers? Um, and what will the response be? Absolutely. And I think that it's an important question to, to start thinking about. On the level of more robust health checks at national borders, I absolutely think that that is going to be uh, continue to be an issue until uh, well after a vaccine has been mm-hmm. developed and has uh, started to be disseminated. Now, it's important to, to look at that in, in two ways. Uh, so the first is how is it that uh, one can secure uh, paperwork to get through those checks? Do you need to, for example, be checked on arrival? Uh, can you simply present uh, paperwork that indicates that you were checked in your country of origin? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's uh, checked on arrival, uh, you know, it's, I think it, it won't have that much of an impact necessarily on uh, decisions to use smugglers or, or not use smugglers um, because there, there will be perhaps a willingness to, uh, to engage in those tests, provided that they are, you don't have to pay for them if, if you're a migrant. I think that if, uh, if migrants are asked to, to pay for them or travelers are asked to pay for them at each national border crossing, that becomes a, a financial encumbrance that could be quite yeah. difficult for many to, um, to deal with. But the second aspect becomes the, the walling off of, of countries. So for example, if you look at Europe, what used to be a fairly open travel zone 
with, for example, uh, very limited checks going from Italy into France or France into Germany. Mm-hmm. If there is a continued walling off of, of countries with uh, national checks of COVID status being mandatory, I think what you could see, especially if the migrants are irregular, is an attempt to circumvent that by whatever means necessary, not because they're worried that they might have COVID, but rather because there would be a worry that those checks then would also look at legal status or non-legal status. And so if that is the case, I think that you would find potentially an increase in uh, smuggling within Europe. So, for example, human smugglers beginning to operate between uh, Italy and France or France to Germany or other areas where traditionally the amount of human smuggling activity has been extremely limited. Uh, So it could actually drive a robust boost in that market. Now, on vaccinations, I think that that it remains to be seen just how quickly a vaccination uh, regime will be developed, how long it's, uh, it offers protection for, and just how it's rolled out. And these are all massive question marks in the future. But that said, I think that we can be fairly sure that vaccination uh, or opportunities for vaccination will not occur uh, concurrently all across the globe. Rather, they will occur consecutively with some countries and some individuals enjoying access to a vaccine first. And many others, uh, especially those that are in developing nations uh, or within economically underserved communities within developed nations, having access to a vaccine only very late in the process. And so, you know, there has been some discussion floated in some uh, some areas about the idea of a vaccine passport or some indication that one has been vaccinated, and I think that if uh, if that was if that was developed, that would simply prevent uh, still a further bar towards legal migration avenues, legal movement avenues for those in economically underserved uh, or underdeveloped areas and actually provide more of an impetus, especially for those that are looking to to migrate for economic reasons anyways, to avoid looking first to legal channels, uh, which, for example, in Tunisia, many do uh, at the very get-go, instead moving directly to the informal and illicit channels that oftentimes are far more dangerous for the migrants themselves. But at the same time, if they're the only uh, credible avenue for being able to get from, say, Tunisia or Morocco to, to Europe, I think that you'll see uh, a focus on that. And have, have smugglers already begun adapting? Have you seen any kind of falsifying of COVID tests and health records? Uh, I have not yet, uh, or at least not within the area that, uh, that I focus on. Um, but I think that it's just a matter of time. I mean, certainly there's a rampant uh, document falsification industry in North Africa and the Sahel writ large, um, you know, focused on everything from visas to false passports to falsified marriage contracts and work contracts. And so I don't think that it would be a particularly large step to move into uh, falsification of, of test results. And again, this would not necessarily be in a nefarious sort of way, or at least not on the part of those uh, buying these results. They're not trying to conceal something. 
rather they're attempting to get around an additional bar on their movement that uh, that they face because of the unique set of circumstances that we we have right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're close to being out of time. Um, so I just wanted to end with a difficult <laughs> question, <laughs> an overarching question, um, which is: Do you think that COVID has has just kind of catalyzed the existing policy challenge around smuggling and irregular migration, or is it fundamentally changed it? I think to a degree, a bit of both. Uh, so yes, it's, it's catalyzed pre-existing trends, uh, especially those that focus on the building up of borders uh, and the, uh, the limitations and mobility that we've seen uh, especially uh, around European nations and migration from North Africa and, uh, and the Sahel. But at the same time, I will say that it's it's essentially catalyzed something new as well, which is health-related xenophobia. Mm-hmm. And so while, yes, you have had outbreaks of various communicable diseases in, uh, in the Ebola outbreak in uh, West Africa, uh, various other uh, outbreaks in uh, in areas of the world that have uh, have raised health concerns uh, in the United States, in the UK, in Europe. You haven't seen uh, panic, popular panic around it, mm-hmm. nor those health concerns driving government policy. With COVID, you do very clearly. I mean, COVID is the major uh, policy challenge across a broad swath of countries right now. And so I think the, the very real risk that uh, policymakers face or the challenge that they face is how to ensure that uh, they, they cater to the very real health concerns of their voter bases without tipping into the sort of xenophobia that uh, is, is perilously close to the surface with a lot of this, the desire to keep everybody that might pose a threat, uh, everybody that might be infected out of a country. And I think that uh, you know the, the particular issue with uh, with all this is that it's not a a one time quick affair that we're dealing with here. It's not a month of worrying. You know the the COVID pandemic is one that's already been with us for. I mean, I guess we're we're going on month seven at time of taping, mm-hmm. and you know likely it will be with us for another twelve to twenty four months. And so not only do public opinions have time within that, uh, that zone to, uh, to form and to be shaped, they have time to, to settle into, uh, you know, into quite a difficult and dangerous set of drivers for, uh, for political impulses and activity. Thank you so much. This has been um, extremely interesting, really informative. Uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Megan. It's absolutely my pleasure to have spoken with you. It's clear from Matt's comments that we're only at the beginning of understanding how seismic a shift COVID-19 will be for the shadow migration world. We've already seen how border and travel restrictions are pushing people into more dangerous routes. The major question for me is whether new health requirements, such as negative PCR tests, will end up pushing people into informal routes, as Matt suggested, and create more of a two-tier mobility system. He also warned against seeing the vaccine as a silver bullet. If initial access to the vaccine is spotty and geographically uneven, it's probably just a matter of time before smugglers and the document falsification industry that supports them turns its attention to test results or 
vaccination records. And we could see an increase in informal routes as people see fewer options to move through regular channels. We'll be following this closely in coming weeks, including looking ahead to the policy response and the implications for the global governance of migration. If you'd like to join us, please subscribe to this podcast, Moving Beyond Pandemic, wherever you find your podcasts. You can also go to our website, migrationpolicy.org forward slash podcasts. While you're there, we have a ton of information about COVID-19 and migration, migrationpolicy.org forward slash topics forward slash coronavirus. I'd like to thank my colleagues, Lisa Dixon, Michelle Middlestadt, and Kenya Guerrero for producing this podcast. The music you heard today was Juno in the Space Maze by Lupop. I'm Megan Benton. I'll see you next time.